Welcome to tape number two of The Attributes of God by A.W. Pink, as read by Michael Wyatt. This Reformation audio resource is a production of Stillwater's Revival Books. There is no copyright on this material, and we encourage you to reproduce it and pass it on to your friends. Many free resources, as well as our complete mail-order catalog containing classic and contemporary Puritan and Reformed books, CDs, and much more at great discounts, is on the web at www.swrb.com. We can also be reached by email at swrb at swrb.com, by phone at 780-450-3730, by fax at 780-468-1096, or by mail at 4710-37A Avenue, Edmonton, Alberta, Canada, T6L3T5. If you do not have a web connection, please request a free printed catalog. If you do have a web connection and would like to be added to our email list, please send an email to add at swrb with the word add in the subject line. And now to the reading of the Attributes of God by A.W. Pink, which we pray you find to be a great blessing and which we hope draws you near to the Lord Jesus Christ. Continuing with the reading from chapter 4, The Foreknowledge of God. Ere proceeding further with our discussion of this much misunderstood theme, let us pause and define our terms. What is meant by foreknowledge? To know beforehand is the ready reply of many, but we must not jump to conclusions, nor must we turn to Webster's Dictionary as the final court of appeal, for it, for it is not a matter of the etymology of the term employed. What is needed to, is to find out how the word is used in Scripture. The Holy Spirit's usage of an expression always defines its meaning and scope. It is failure to apply this simple rule which is responsible for so much confusion and error. So many people assume they already know the significance of a certain word used in Scripture, and then they are too dilatory to test their assumptions by means of a concordance. Let us amplify this point. Take the word flesh. Its meaning appears to be so obvious that many would regard it a waste of time to look up its various connections in Scripture. It is hastily assumed that the word is synonymous with the physical body, and so no inquiry is made. But in fact, flesh in Scripture frequently includes far more than what is corporal. All that is embraced by the term can only be ascertained by a diligent comparison of every occurrence of it and by a study of each separate context. Take the word world. The average reader of the Bible imagines this word is the equivalent for the human race and consequently, many passages where the term is found are wrongly interpreted. Interpreted. Take the word immortality. Surely it requires no study. Obviously, it has reference to the indestructibility of the soul. Ah, my reader, it is foolish and wrong to assume anything where the word of God is concerned. If the reader will take the trouble to carefully examine each passage where mortal and immortal are found it will be seen that these words are never applied to the soul, but always to the body. Now, what has just been said of flesh, the word, the word world, immortality, applies with equal force to the word know and foreknow. 
instead of imagining that these words signify no more than a s simple cognition, the different passages in which they occur require to be carefully weighed. The word foreknowledge is not found in the Old Testament, but no occurs there frequently. When that term is used in connection with God, it often signifies to regard with favor, denoting not mere cognition, but an affection for the object in view. I know thee by name, Exodus 33:17. You have been rebellious against the Lord from the day that I knew you, Deuteronomy 9:24. Before I formed thee in the belly, I knew thee, Jeremiah 1:5. They have made princesses, excuse me. They have made princesses and I knew them. Excuse me. They have made princes and I knew it not. Hosea 8:4. You only have I known of all the families of the earth, Amos 3.2. In these passages, new signifies either loved or appointed. In like manner, the word know is frequently used in the New Testament in the same sense as in the Old Testament. Then will I profess unto them, I never knew you, Matthew 7.23. I am the good shepherd and know my sheep and am known of them, John 10.14. If any man love God, the same is known of him. 1 Corinthians 8.3 The Lord knoweth them that are his. 2 Timothy 2.19 Now the word foreknowledge, as it is used in the New Testament, is less ambiguous than, it is, than in its simple form to know. If every passage in which it occurs is carefully studied, it will be discovered that it is a moot point whether it ever has reference to the mere perception of events which are yet to take place. The fact is that foreknowledge is never used in Scripture in connection with events or actions. Instead, it always has references to persons. It is persons God is said to foreknow, not the actions of those persons. In proof of this, we shall now quote each passage where this expression is found. The first occurrence is in Acts 2.23. There we read, Him being delivered by the determinate counsel and foreknowledge of God, you have taken and by wicked hands have crucified and slain. If careful attention is paid to the wording of this verse, it will be seen that the apostle was not there speaking of God's foreknowledge of the act of the crucifixion, but of the person crucified, him, Christ, being delivered by, etc. The second occurrence is in Romans 8:29 and 30. For whom he did foreknow, he also did predestinate to be conformed to the image of his Son, that he might be the firstborn among many brethren. Moreover, whom he did predestinate, them he also called, etc. Weigh well the pronoun that is used here. It is not what did he foreknow, but whom he did. It is not the surrendering of their wills, nor the believing of their hearts, but the persons themselves that are here in view. God has not cost cast away his people which he foreknew, Romans 11.2. Once more, the plain reference is to persons and to persons only. The last mention is in 1 Peter 1.2. Elect according to the foreknowledge of God the Father. Who are elect according to the foreknowledge of God the Father? 
The precious the previous verse tells us the reference is to the stranger scattered, i.e. the diaspora, the dispersion, the believing Jews. Thus here too the reference is to persons and not to the for not to their foreseen acts. Now in view of these passages and there are no more, what scriptural ground is there for anyone saying God foreknew the acts of certain one, vis a vis their repenting and believing? and that because of those acts he elected them unto salvation? The answer is none whatever. Scripture never speaks of repentance and faith as being foreseen or foreknown by God. Truly, he did know from all eternity that certain ones would repent and believe, yet this is not what Scripture refers to as the object of God's foreknowledge. The word uniformly refers to God's foreknowing persons. Then let us behold fatness. Excuse me. The word uniformly refers to God's knowing, foreknowing persons. Then let us hold fast the form of sound words. Second Timothy 1.13 Another thing to which we desire to call particular attention is that the first two passages quoted above show plainly and teach implicitly that God's foreknowledge is not causative, that instead something else lies behind, precedes it, and that something is his own sovereign decree. Christ was delivered by the determinate counsel and foreknowledge of God. Acts 2.23 His counsel or decree was the ground of his foreknowledge. So again in Romans 8.29 that verse opens with the word for, which tells us to look back to what immediately precedes. What then does the previous verse say? This, all things work together for good to them who are the called according to his purpose. Thus, God's foreknowledge is based upon his purpose or decree. See Psalm 2, verse 7. God foreknows what will be because he has decreed what shall be. It is therefore a reversing of the order of scripture, a putting of the cart before the horse to affirm that God elects because he foreknows people. The truth is he foreknows because he has elected. This removes the ground or cause of election from outside the creature and places it in God's own sovereign will. God purposed in himself to elect a certain people, not because of anything good in them or from them, either actual or foreseen, but solely out of his own mere pleasure. As to why he chose the ones he did, we do not know and can only say, Even so, Father, for so it seemed good in thy sight. The plain truth of Romans 8.29 is that God, before the foundation of the world, singled out certain sinners and appointed them unto salvation, 2 Thessalonians 2.13. This is clear from the concluding words of the verse, predestinated to be conformed to the image of his Son, etc. God did not predestinate those whom he foreknew were conformed, but on the contrary, those whom he foreknew i.e. loved and elected. He predestinated to be conformed. Their conformity to Christ is not the cause, but the effect of God's foreknowledge and predestination. God did not elect any sinner because he foresaw that he would believe, but the simple but for the simple 
but sufficient reason that no sinner ever does believe God until God gives him faith, just as no man sees until God gives him sight. Sight is God's gift. Seeing is the consequence of my using his gift. So faith is God's gift. Ephesians 2, verses 8 and 9. Believing is the consequence of my using his gift. If it were true that God had elected certain ones to be saved because in due time they would believe, then that would make believing a meritorious act, and in that event the saved sinner would have grounds for boasting, which Scripture emphatically denies, Ephesians 2.9. Surely God's word is plain enough in teaching that believing is not a meritorious act. It affirms that it affirms that Christians are a people who have believed through grace, Acts 18.27. If then they have believed through grace, there is absolutely nothing meritorious about believing. And if nothing meritorious, it could not be the ground or cause which moved God to choose them. No, God's choice proceeds not from anything in us or anything from us, but solely from his own sovereign pleasure. Once more, in Romans 11.5, we read of a remnant according to the election of grace. There it is, plain enough. Election itself is of grace, and grace is unmerited favor, something for which we had no claim upon God whatsoever. It thus appears that it is highly important for us to have clear and scriptural views of the foreknowledge of God, Erroneous conceptions about it lead inevitably to thoughts more dishonoring, most dishonoring to him. The popular idea of divine foreknowledge is altogether inadequate. God not only knew the end from the beginning, but he planned, fixed, predestinated everything from the beginning. And as cause stands to effect, so God's purpose is the ground of his prescience. If then the reader be a real Christian, he is so because God chose him in Christ before the foundation of the world, Ephesians 1.4, and chose him not because he foresaw you would believe, but chose simply because it pleased him to choose, chose you notwithstanding your natural unbelief. This being so, all the glory and praise belong alone to him. You have no ground for taking any credit to yourself. You have believed through grace, Acts 18.27, and that because your very election was of grace, Romans 11.5. Chapter 5, The Supremacy of God. In one of his letters to Erasmus, Luther said, quote, Your thoughts of God are too human, end quote. Probably that renowned scholar resented such a rebuke, the more so since it proceeded from a miner's son. Nevertheless, it was thoroughly deserved. We too, though having no standing among the religious leaders of this degenerate age, prefer the same charge against the majority of the preachers of our day, and against those who, instead of searching the scriptures for themselves, lazily accept the teaching of others. The most dishonoring and degrading conceptions of the rule and reign of the Almighty are now held almost everywhere. To countless thousands, even among those professing to be Christians, the God of the Scriptures is quite unknown. 
Of old God complained to an apostate Israel, Thou thoughtest that I was altogether as thyself. Psalm 50 verse 21 Such must now be his indictment against an apostate Christendom. Men imagine that the Most High is moved by sentiment rather than actuated by principle. They suppose that his omnipotency is such an idle fiction that Satan is thwarting his designs or even on every side. They think that if he had formed any plan or purpose at all, then it must be like theirs, constantly subject to change. They openly declare that whatever power he possesses must be restricted lest he invade the citadel of man's free will and reduce him to a machine. They lower the all-efficacious atonement which has actually redeemed everyone for whom it was made to a mere remedy which sin-sick souls may use if they feel disposed to and they innervate the invincible work of the Holy Spirit to an offer of the gospel which sinners may accept or reject as they please. The God, that is, with a little g, of this 20th century no more resembles the supreme sovereign of holy writ than does the dim flickering of a candle the glory of the midday sun. The God, with a little g, who is now talked about in the average pulpit, spoken of in ordinary Sunday school, mentioned in much of the religious literature of the day, and preached in most of the so-called Bible conferences is a figment of human imagination, an invention of maudlin sentimentality. The heathen outside of the pale of Christendom form God's little g out of wood and stone, while the millions of heathen inside Christendom manufact a God with a little g out of their own carnal mind. In reality, they are but atheists, for there is no other possible alternative between an absolute supreme God and no God at all. A God with a little g, whose will is resisted, whose designs are frustrated, whose purpose is checkmated, possesses no title to deity, and so far from being a fit object of worship, merits not but contempt." The supremacy of the true and living God might well be argued from the infinite distance which separates the mightiest creatures from the almighty creator. He is the potter, they are but the clay in his hands, to be molded into vessels of honor or to be dashed into pieces, Psalm 2.9, as he pleases. Were all the denizens of heaven and all the inhabitants of the earth to combine in revolt against him, it would occasion him no uneasiness and would have less effect upon his eternal and unassailable throne than has the spray of Mediterranean's waves upon the towering rocks of Gibraltar. So puerile and powerless is the creature to affect the Most High. Scripture itself tells us that when the Gentile heads unite with apostate Israel to defy Jehovah and his Christ, he that sitteth in the heavens shall laugh, Psalm 2, verse 4. The absolute and universal supremacy of God is plainly and positively affirmed in many scriptures. Thine, O Lord, is the greatest and the power and the glory and the victory and the majesty, for all in the heaven and all in the earth is thine. Thine is the kingdom, O Lord, and thou art exalted as head above all, 
and thou reignest over all. First Chronicles 29, 11 and 12. Note, reignest now, not will do so in the millennium. O Lord God of our fathers, art not thou God in heaven, and rulest not thou over all the kingdoms of the heathen? And in thine hand is there not power and might, so that none, not even the devil himself, is able to withstand thee? Second Chronicles 20, verse 6. Before him, presidents and popes, kings and emperors, are less than grasshoppers. But he is in one mind, and who can turn him? And what his soul desireth, even that he doeth. Job 23:13. Ah, my reader, the God of Scripture is no make-believe monarch, no mere imaginary sovereign, but King of kings and Lord of lords. I know that thou canst do everything, and that no thought of thine can be hindered. Job 42:2. Or, as another translator renders it, no purpose of thine can be frustrated. All that he has designed, he does. All that he has decreed, he performs. But our God is in the heavens. He has done whatsoever he hath pleased. Psalm 115, verse 3. And why has he? Because there is no wisdom, no understanding, nor counsel against the Lord. Proverbs 21, verse 30. God's supremacy over the works of his hands is vividly depicted in Scripture. Inanimate matter, irrational creatures, all perform their Maker's bidding. At His pleasure, the Red Sea divided, and its waters stood up as walls. Exodus 14. And the earth opened her mouth, and guilty rebels went down alive into the pit. Number 16. When He so ordered, the sun stood still. Joshua 10. And on another occasion, went backwards 10 degrees on the dial of Ahaz. Isaiah 38.8. To exemplify his supremacy, he made ravens carry food to Elijah, 1 Kings 17, iron to swim on top of the water, 2 Kings 6, 5, lions to be tame when Daniel was cast into their den, fire to burn not when the three Hebrews were flung into its flames. Thus, whatsoever the Lord pleased, that did he in heaven and in earth, in the seas, and all the deep places. Psalm 135, verse 6. God's supremacy is also demonstrated in his perfect rule over the wills of men. Let the reader ponder carefully Exodus 34, verse 24. Three times in the year, all the males of Israel were required to leave their homes and go, to up, go up to Jerusalem. They lived in the midst of hostile people who hated them for having appropriated their lands. What then was to hinder the Canaanites from seizing their opportunity and during the absence of the men slaying the children and women and taking possession of their farms? If the hand of the Almighty was not upon the wills even of wicked men, how could he make this promise beforehand that none should so much as desire their lands? Ah, the king's heart is in the hand of the Lord as the rivers of water. He turneth it whithersoever he will. Proverbs 21.1 But it may be objected, do we not read again and again in Scripture how that men defied God, resisted his will, broke his commandments, disregarded his warnings, and turned a deaf ear to all his exhortations? 
Certainly we do. And does this nullify all that we have said above? If it does, then the Bible plainly contradicts itself. But that cannot be. What the objector refers to is simply the wickedness of man against the external word of God, whereas what we have mentioned above is what God has purposed in himself. The rule of conduct he has given us to walk by is perfectly fulfilled by none of us. His own eternal counsels are accomplished to their minutest details. The absolute and universal supremacy of God is affirmed with equal plainness and positiveness in the New Testament. There we are told that God worketh all things after the counsel of his own will, Ephesians 1.5. The Greek for worketh means to work effectually. For this reason we read, For of him and through him and to him are all things, to whom be glory forever. Amen. Romans 11.36 Men may boast that they are free agents with a will of their own and are at liberty to do as they please, but Scripture says to those who boast, We will go into such a city and continue there a year and buy and sell. You ought to say, If the Lord will. James 4:13 and 15. Here then is a sure resting place for the heart. Our lives are neither the product of blind fate nor the result of capricious chance, but every detail of them was ordained from all eternity and now ordered by the living and reigning God. Not a hair of our heads can be touched without his permission. A man's heart devises his way, but the Lord directeth his steps. Proverbs 16:9. What assurance, what strength, what comfort this should give the real Christian. My times are in thy hand, Psalm 31:15. Then let me rest in the Lord and wait patiently for him, Psalm 37:7. Chapter 6: The Sovereignty of God. The sovereignty of God may be defined as the exercise of his supremacy, see preceding chapter but infinitely elevated above the highest creature. He is the Most High, Lord of heaven and earth, subject to none, influenced by none, absolutely independent. God does as he pleases, only as he pleases, always as he pleases. None can thwart him, none can hinder him. So his own word expressly declares, My counsel shall stand, and I will do all my pleasure. Isaiah 46.10 he doeth according to his will in the army of heaven and among the inhabitants of the earth, and none can stay his hand. Daniel 4.35 Divine sovereignty means that God is God in fact, as well as in name, and he is on the throne of the universe, directing all things, working all things after the counsel of his own will. Ephesians 1.11 Rightly did the late Charles Haddon Spurgeon say in his sermon on Matthew 20, verse 15, quote, There is no attribute more comforting to his children than that of God's sovereignty. Under the most adverse circumstances, in the most severe trials, they believe that sovereignty has ordained their afflictions, that sovereignty overrules them, and that sovereignty will sanctify them all. There is nothing for which the children ought more earnestly to contend than the doctrine of their master over all creation, the kingship of God over all the works of his own hands, the throne of God, and his right to sit upon the throne. 
On the other hand, there is no doctrine more hated by worldlings, no truth of which they have made such a football as the great, stupendous, but yet most certain doctrine of the sovereignty of the infinite Jehovah. Men will allow God to be everywhere except on his throne. They will allow him to be in his workshop to fashion worlds and to make stars. They will allow him to be in his almary to dispense his alms and bestow his bounties. They will allow him to sustain the earth and bear up the pillars thereof, or light the lamps of heaven, or rule the waves of the ever-moving ocean. But when God ascends his throne, his creatures then gnash their teeth, and we proclaim and enthrone God and his right to do as he wills with his own, to dispose of his creatures as he thinks well, without consulting them in the matter. Then it is that we are hissed and execrated, and then it is that men turn a deaf ear to us, for God is on his throne, is not the God they love, but it is God upon the throne that we love to preach. It is God upon his throne whom we trust. End quote. Whatsoever the Lord pleased, that he did that did he in heaven and in earth and in the seas and all the deep places. Psalm one thirty five verse six. Yes, dear reader, such is the imperial potentate revealed in holy writ. Unrivaled in majesty, unlimited in power, unaffected by anything outside himself. But we are living in a day when even the most, quote, orthodox, unquote, seem afraid to admit the proper, proper godhood of God. They say that to press the sovereignty of God excludes human responsibility, whereas human responsibility is based upon, hum- on divine sovereignty and is the product of it. But our God is in the heavens. He hath done whatsoever he hath pleased. Psalm 115, verse 3. He sovereignly chose to place each of his creatures on that particular footing which seemed good in his sight. He created angels. Some he placed on a conditional footing. Others he gave in an immutable standing before him. 1 Timothy 5.21 Making Christ their head. Colossians 2.10 let it not be overlooked that the angels which sinned, Second Peter 2.5, were as much his creatures as the angels that sinned not. Yet God foresaw they would fall. Nevertheless, he placed them on a mutable creature conditional footing and suffered them to fall, though he was not the author of their sin. So, too, God sovereignly placed Adam in the Garden of Eden upon a conditional footing, Had he so pleased, he could have placed him upon an unconditional footing. He could have placed him on a footing as firm as that occupied by the unfallen angels. He could have placed him upon a footing as sure as an immutable and as immutable as that which his saints have in Christ. But instead, he chose to set him in Eden on the basis of creature responsibility, so that he stood or fell according as he measured up or failed to measure up to his responsibility, obedience to his Maker. Adam stood accountable to God by the law which his Creator had given him. Here was responsibility, unimpaired responsibility, tested out under the most favorable conditions. Now God did not place Adam upon a footing of conditional creature responsibility because it was right he should so place him, 
No, it was right because God did it. God did not even give creatures being being because it was right for him to do so, i.e. because he was under any obligations to create. But it was right because he did so. God is sovereign. His will is supreme. So far from God being under any law of right, he is a law unto himself, so that whatsoever he does is right. And woe be to the rebel that cause his sovereignty into question. Woe unto him that striveth with his maker. Let the potsherds strive with the potsherds of the earth. Shall the clay say to him that fashioned it, What makest thou? Isaiah 45, verse 9. Again, the Lord God sovereignly placed Israel upon a conditional footing. The 19th, 20th, and 24th chapters of Exodus afford a clear and full proof of this. They were placed under a covenant of works. God gave to them certain laws and made national blessing for them depend upon their observance of his statutes. But Israel was stiff-necked and uncircumcised in heart. They rebelled against Jehovah, forsook his law, turned unto false gods, apostatized. In consequence, divine judgment fell upon them. They were delivered into the hands of their enemies, dispersed abroad throughout the earth, and remained under the heavy frown of God's displeasure to this day. It was God in the exercise of his high sovereignty that placed Satan and his angels, Adam and Israel, in their respective responsible positions. But so far from his sovereignty taking away responsibility from the creature, it was by the exercise thereof that he placed them on this conditional footing under such responsibilities as he thought proper by virtue of which by virtue of which sovereignty he is seen to be god over all thus there is perfect harmony between the sovereignty of god and the responsibility of the creature many have foolishly said that it is quite impossible to show where divine sovereignty ends and creature accountability begins here is where creature responsibility begins in the sovereign ordination of his of the Creator. As to his sovereignty, there is not and never will be any end to it. Let us give further proofs that the responsibility of the creature is based upon God's sovereignty. How many things are recorded in Scripture which were right because God commanded them, and which would not have been right had he not so commanded? What right had Adam to eat of the trees of the garden? the permission of his maker, Genesis 2.16, without which he would have been a thief. What right had Israel to borrow of the Egyptians jewels and raiment, Exodus 12.35? None, unless Jehovah had authorized it, Exodus 3.22. What right had Israel to slay so many lambs for sacrifice? None, except that God commanded it. What right had Israel to kill off all the Canaanites? None, save as Jehovah had bidden them. What right had the husband to require submission from his wife? None, unless God had appointed it. And so we might go on. Human responsibility is based upon divine sovereignty. One more example of the exercise of God's absolute sovereignty. God placed his elect upon a different footing from Adam or Israel. He placed his elect upon an unconditional footing. In the everlasting covenant, 
Jesus Christ was appointed their head, took their responsibilities upon himself, and wrought out a righteousness for them which is perfect, indefeasible, eternal. Christ was placed upon a conditional footing, for he was made under the law to redeem them that were under the law. Only with this infinite difference, the others failed. He did not and could not. And who placed Christ upon that conditional footing? The triune God. It was sovereign will that appointed him, sovereign love that sent him, sovereign authority that assigned him his work. Certain conditions were set before the mediator. He was to be made in the likeness of sin's flesh. He was to magnify the law and make it honorable. He was to bear all the sins of all God's people in his own body on the tree. He was to make full atonement for them. He was to endure the outpoured wrath of God. He was to die and be buried. On the fulfillment of these conditions, he was promised a reward. Isaiah 53, verses 10 to 12. He was to be the firstborn among many brethren. He was to have a people who should share his glory. Blessed be his name forever. He fulfilled those conditions, and because he did so, the Father stands pledged on solemn oath to preserve through time and bless throughout eternity every one of those for whom his incarnate Son mediated. Because he took their place, they now share his. His righteousness is theirs. His standing before God is theirs. His life is theirs. There is not a single condition for them to meet, not a single responsibility for them to discharge in order to attain their eternal bless. By one offering, he hath perfected forever them that are set apart. Hebrews 10.14 Here then is the sovereignty of God, openly displayed before all, displayed in the different, part, in the different ways in which he has dealt with his creatures. Part of the angels, Adam, Israel, were placed upon the conditional footing, continuance in blessing, being made dependent upon their obedience and fidelity to God. But, in sharp contrast from them, the little flock, Luke 12:32, have been given an unconditional and immutable standing in God's covenant, God's counsels, God's Son, their blessings being made dependent upon what Christ did for them, the foundation of God standeth sure, having this seal. The Lord knoweth them that are his. 2 Timothy 2.19 The foundation on which God's elect stand is a perfect one. Nothing can be added to it, nothing can, nor anything taken from it. Ecclesiastes 3.13 Here, then, is the highest and grandest display of the absolute sovereignty of God. Verily, he has mercy on whom he will, have mercy, and whom he will, he hardeneth. Romans 9.18 Chapter 7 The Immutability of God Immutability is one of the divine perfections which is not sufficiently pondered. It is one of the excellencies of the Creator which distinguishes him from all creatures. God is perpetually the same, subject to no change in his being, attributes, or determinations. Therefore, God is compared to a rock, Deuteronomy 32.4, etc., which remains immovable when the entire ocean surrounding it is continually in a fluctuating state. Even so, though all creatures are subject to change, God is immutable. 
Because God has no beginning and no ending, He can know no change. He is everlastingly the Father of lights, with whom is no variableness, neither shadow of turning. James 1.17 First, God is immutable in His essence. His nature and being are infinite and so subject to no mutations. There never was a time when He was not. There never will come a time when He shall cease to be. God has neither evolved, grown, nor improved. All he, all that he is today, he has ever been and ever will be. I am the Lord, I change not, Malachi 3.6, is his own unqualified affirmation. He cannot change for the better, for he is already perfect, and being perfect, he cannot change for the worse. Altogether unaffected by anything outside himself, improvement or deterioration is impossible. He is perpetually the same. He can only say, I am that I am, Exodus 3.14. He is altogether uninfluenced by the flight of time. There is no wrinkle upon the brow of eternity. Therefore, his power can never diminish, nor his glory ever fade. Secondly, God is immutable in his attributes. Whatever the attributes of God were before the universe was called into existence, they are precisely the same now and will remain so forever. Necessarily so, for they are the very perfections, the essential qualities of his being. Semper idem, always the same, is written across every one of them. His power is unabated, his wisdom undiminished, his holiness unsullied. The attributes of God can no more change than deity can cease to be. His veracity is immutable, for his word is forever settled in heaven. Psalm 119.89 His love is eternal. I have loved thee with an everlasting love. Jeremiah 31.3 And having loved his own which were in the world, he loved them unto the end. John 13.1 His mercy ceases not, for it is everlasting. Psalm 100 verse 5 Third, God is immutable in his counsel. He will he will never, his will never varies. Perhaps some are ready to object that we ought to read the following, and it repented the Lord that he had made man, Genesis 6, 6. Our first reply is, then do the scriptures contradict themselves? No, that cannot be. Numbers 23:19 is plain enough. God is not a man that he should lie, neither the son of man that he should repent. So also in 1 Samuel 15:29, the strength of Israel will not lie nor repent, for he is not a man that he should repent. The explanation is very simple. When speaking of himself, God frequently accommodates his language to our limited capacities. He describes himself as clothed with bodily members, as eyes, ears, hands, etc. He speaks of himself as waking, Psalm 78:65 as rising early Jeremiah 7:13 yet he neither slumbers nor sleeps when he institutes a change in his dealings with men he describes his course of conduct as repenting yes god is immutable in his counsel the gifts and callings of god are with without repentance Romans 11:29 it must be so, for he is in one mind, and who can turn him? And what his soul desireth, even that he doeth. Job 23.13 Change and decay in, in all around we see. May he who changes not abide with thee. God's purpose never 
alters. One of two things causes a man to change his mind and reverse his plans. Want or lack of foresight to anticipate everything or lack of power to execute them. But as God is both omniscient and omnipotent, there is never any need for him to revise his decrees. No, the counsel of the Lord standeth forever, the thoughts of his heart to all generations. Psalm 33.11 Therefore do we read of the immutability of his counsel. Hebrews 6.17 Herein we may perceive the infinite distance which separates the highest creature from the Creator. Creaturehood and mutability are co-relative terms. If the creature was not mutable by nature, it would not be a creature. It would be God. By nature, we tend towards nothingness since we came from nothing. Nothing stays our uh, annihilation but the will and sustaining power of God. None can, can sustain himself a single moment. We are entirely dependent on the Creator for every breath we draw. We gladly own with the psalmist, Thou holdest our soul in life. Psalm 66, verse 9. The realization of this ought to make us lie down under a sense of our own nothingness in the presence of Him in whom we live and move and have our being. Acts 17:28. As fallen creatures, we are not only mutable, but everything in us is opposed to God. As such, we are wandering stars, Jude 13, out of, our proper or, out of our proper orbit. The wicked are like the troubled sea when it cannot rest, Isaiah 57:20. Fallen man is inconstant. The words of Jacob concerning Reuben apply with full force in all of Adam's descendants. Unstable is water, Genesis 49:4. Thus, it is not only a mark of piety, but also the part of wisdom to heed that injunction, cease ye from man, Isaiah 2:22. No human being is to be dependent on. Put not your trust in princes, in the Son of Man, in whom is no help, Psalm 146, verse 3. If I disobey God, then I deserve to be deceived and disappointed by my fellows. People who like you today may hate you tomorrow. People who like you today may hate you tomorrow. The multitude who cried Hosanna to the Son of David speedily changed to away with him, crucify him. Herein is solid comfort. Human nature cannot be relied upon, but God can. However unstable I may be, however fickle my friends may prove, God changes not. If he varied as we do, if he willed one thing today and another tomorrow, if he were controlled by caprice... Who could confide in him? But all praise to his glorious name. He is ever the same. His purpose is fixed. His will is stable. His word is sure. Here then is a rock on which we may fix our feet while the mighty torrent is sweeping away everything around us. The permanence of God's character guarantees the fulfillment of his promises. For the mountains shall depart and the hills be removed, but my kindness shall not depart from thee. Neither shall the covenant of my peace be removed, saith the Lord, that hath mercy on thee. Isaiah 54.10 Herein is encouragement to prayer. Quote, this is a quote from Stephen Charnock in 1670. What comfort would it be to pray to a God, little g, that like a chameleon change color every moment? Who would put up a petition to an earthly prince that was so mutable as to grant a petition one day and deny it on another. Quote. 
should someone ask, but what is the use of praying to one who will, whose will is already fixed? We answer, because he so requires it. What blessings has God promised without our seeking them? If we ask anything according to his will, he heareth us, 1 John 5.14, and he has willed everything that is for his child's good. To ask for anything contrary to his will is not prayer, but rank rebellion. Herein is terror for the wicked. Those who defy him, who break his laws, who have no concern for his glory, but who live their lives as though he existed not, must not suppose that when at the last they shall cry to him for mercy, he will alter his will, revoke his word, and rescind his awful threatenings. No, he has declared, Therefore will I also deal in fury. Mine eye shall not spare, neither will I have pity. And though they cry in mine ear with a loud voice, yet will I not hear them. Ezekiel 8.18 God will not deny himself to gratify their lust. God is holy, unchangingly so. Therefore God hates sin, eternally hates it. Hence the eternality of the punishment of all who die in their sins. A quote from uh, John Dick, 1850. Quote, the divine immutability, like the cloud which interposed between the Israelites and the Egyptian army, has a dark as well as a light side. It ensures the execution of his threatenings as well as the performance of his promises and destroys the hope which the guilty fondly cherish and he will be all lenity to his frail and erring creatures and that they will be much more lightly dealt with than the declarations of his own word would lead us to expect. We oppose to those deceitful and presumptuous speculations the solemn truth that God is unchanging in veracity and purpose, in faithfulness and justice. End quote. This ends tape two of the Attributes of God by A.W. Pink. Please go to the next tape in the series. Thank you. This Reformation audio resource is a production of Stillwater's Revival Books. Many free resources, as well as SWRB's complete mail order catalog, containing classic and contemporary, contemporary Puritan and Reformed books, CDs, and much more, at great discounts, is on the web at www.swrb.com. You can reach us by mail at swrb at swrb.com, by phone at 780-450-3730, by fax at 780-468-1096, or by mail at 4710-37A Avenue, Edmonton, Alberta, Canada. This book, The Attributes of God, by A.W. Pink is also available from Stillwater's Revival Books in soft cover format at a discount in our A to Z author listings. Please don't forget to look over the 62 CDs that make up our Reformation and Puritan Bookshelf CD sets by visiting our website at swrb.com as these CDs are a great, great way to build a major reform library at a fraction of the cost of the printed books.